Good morning, Joy Church. Good to be with you guys today. Man, what a great time in worship. I think there was just such a, a great theme of breakthrough and God wanting to break through. I was, I was feeling like, I've been feeling this the last few Sundays, just our worship and our praise is like a battering ram breaking down gates. And I think there's a, a shift in an atmosphere over, over our city and in our church and their own lives, just letting the, the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. You know, we're in a, a spiritual battle uh, always, whether we perceive it or feel it, there's a, a spiritual battle going on. And we see the ramifications and the implications of that in the natural world, but it's, it, the fight is in the spiritual realm. As Paul said in Ephesians, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness in this present age. And so uh, you might think it's your neighbor or the other political side or uh, a business or the evil corporations or whatever, but it's not them. It's actually th them under the influence of uh, the forces of darkness. And so our praise and our worship is, is warfare in church. It's not just to come in and we feel the sweet presence of the Lord. There's freedom and restoration. And man, it feels good to be here together. There's love and grace, but it's also warfare in the spiritual realm. And so one of the encouragements I would have for you today is that let's just do this where when we sing songs in church, um, let's just Let's just believe and ask God that it would be true in our hearts what we're praying for, what we're singing, what we're declaring. Kyle said something today. He said, hey, prophesy to yourself. And I thought, man, that's good because everything that we, that we sang today is a prophetic thing. Like, God, we're believing and praying for breakthrough. We're believing and praying for your spirit to change the atmosphere. Amen? Yes. So instead of just coming to church and singing songs, let's come to church and prophesy. Let's come to church and declare in truth and reality what God wants to do. And uh, man, your life's going to change if those songs become real to you, right? And what we sing and pray. Man, so good to be with you. Happy USC losing day. Yes. Man, I love a duck victory. I love a, a Washington Husky loss and a USC Trojan loss. You know, under Satan's command, they have to fall. Every giant, as we sing, has to fall. Excited to be with you guys today. You know, uh, I had a birthday this week. And uh, yeah, excited about that. Excited about that. I am uh, I'm not 50, in case you think that. I'm not. I'm in my now late 30s, 38 years old, but uh, got a lot of gray hair, a lot of experience there. And uh, anyways, I had a great time. Bethany made me an amazing meal, chicken parmesan with amazing, yeah, incredible, delicious, and a homemade pie. Let's go. Praise the Lord. But I, I am finding something out. As I, as I get older, my clothes get smaller. Does anybody else... So like as I get older, my clothes get smaller. I don't know how that works. It must be the age of the fabric or something, right? Is that how that happens? The dryer. Yeah, that's what I've been saying for years. But uh, it's not the dryer. It's the eating. Okay. <laughs> We're starting a brand new series called Relatable. And I'm really excited about this series. We're going to explore human relationships and the sacredness that God wants us to see in those relationships. And we'll, today we're going to unpack what that, that means and, and really lay a, a foundation of theology for the whole series moving forward. And this series is going to be a little different because we're going to have different styles of messages that happen. Next week my parents are going to be here and they're going to be sharing on uh, being a parent and seeing the sacredness of parenting and that, and that responsibility uh, as you raise kids. Now you might be like, oh, well, I don't have children in the house or I don't have any kids yet or... Um, I'm too busy to go to church because I actually have kids, right? But there's going to be something for everybody, so please don't, don't miss that. And I know they're going to share out of the wealth of experience and, and just heritage and legacy that they bring to the table, um, having now pastored for 40 years and uh, no scandal, just integrity. And uh, man, I love my parents. They're incredible, and they're, they're going to be speaking to us next week. So let's, I want to be here to hear what they have to say. 
And also, I need to be here because my mom won't give me Christmas presents if I skipped her, her time. So I came across this story uh, as I was studying for this message. It says, if you think your family has problems, consider the marriage mayhem created when 76-year-old Bill Baker of London recently wed Edna Harvey. She happened to be his granddaughter's husband's mother. Just, you're not going to get it, but okay. Granddaughter's husband's mother. That's where the confusion began. According to Baker's granddaughter, Lynn, my mother-in-law is now my step-grandmother. My grandfather is now my stepfather-in-law. My mom is my sister-in-law and my brother is my nephew. But even crazier than that is that I'm now married to my uncle and my own children are my cousins. (laughs) Anybody here from Tennessee or Arkansas? Come on, you know what that's all about. Anyways, uh, or West Virginia. (laughs) Pastor, that... That's offensive. I know. You need to laugh a little bit. Uh, this happened in England. But, you know, family gets crazy. In church, we, we spend a lot of time talking about relationship with God. Uh, but we oftentimes don't spend enough time. Or when we do spend time, we don't go to the depth that, needs to, that we need to go to when it comes to our relationships with one another, our everyday, ordinary human relationships. But how we relate to other people has tremendous ramifications Uh, for our freedom and flourishing as human beings made in the image of God. Now, I don't know about you, but probably my my greatest uh, failures in relationships happened with my siblings. Did anybody else grow up just fighting like cats and dogs with their siblings? I feel like it's woven into DNA that like you must fight with your siblings. Um, Some people are like, I never fought with my sister or my brother. You're a liar. So um, (laughs) there's freedom for you in Christ. But uh, but. I grew up fighting with my siblings and my sister and I particularly would fight a lot and we're both kind of leader oriented type people and I think we were living that out as kids and trying to you know take authority whatever but not with maturity or godliness and so we'd really fight then my brother Johnny was born when I was 10 years old so there's a decade between us and being 18 years old 17 16 17 18 and kind of transitioning into adulthood and wanting some independence and all that and valuing things like taking a shower every day, right? Uh, my brother at seven, eight, he was still in the worms in my pocket phase, right? Like sticky. I just remember him always being sticky, just always for no reason. It was like, why are you sticky? He's like, well, I mean, four days ago, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Gross. So Johnny and we, we were kind of, you know, we'd fight a little bit, but we didn't really fight in the same way I fought with Natalie so much. Um, Gino was the middle child, so we just ignored him as you do in, in the birth order. Guys, I'm bringing comedic gold today. I don't know what, what, what's going on, but wow, praise the Lord. It's an anointing of, okay. So uh, Johnny though, we didn't, we didn't really fight, but, but we did have a pretty serious sibling thing going on one day. Um, I, I was downstairs. We, we had a daylight basement. My room was down there and Johnny's room was actually down there. And then uh, the living space in our house was upstairs. And uh, one day, it was probably like a Monday or Tuesday, my parents had gone to the church to go to work and I was there and my mom had left Johnny and our, his friend Lydia, uh, who's uh, uh, the mother of our nephews. And uh, anyways, um, John, Lydia, not from that s- story, that's going to sound like <laughs> this is a different brother. But anyways, it's getting confusing. We have the same type of family like that guy from England. Our family tree is a bamboo shoot. All right. So uh, Johnny and Lydia are hanging out. They're prob- he's probably like seven, eight, nine years old at this point, maybe 10. And, uh, and I'm downstairs and, and Johnny and Lydia, I don't know if my mom didn't tell them, but, but they didn't know I was there. So they hear the sounds of a large man 
apparently getting ready downstairs, which is probably what I was doing. It's probably putting on like Axe body spray to be cute to the girls at youth group or whatever. I don't know what I was doing. And I come up the stairs, I'm going to have a piece of toast or whatever. And lo and behold, what am I met with? But two 10-year-old children with butcher knives. (laughs) And they go, I go, ah! And they go, ah! But I didn't have a knife. They had a knife, you know? And so they're there and, ah, 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 right? And everybody's scared. And so they thought, logically, that there was a robber, an, an intruder downstairs, right, that had broken into the house. They didn't know I was home, and I didn't know they were there, and I certainly didn't think I was going to be murdered by my little brother and his friend, you know? Talk about a bad way to go, right? How did you get to heaven, St. Peter? You know, hey, I'm here, checking in. I'm in, right? You know, and, and uh, he's like, yeah, you're good. You barely made it, but come on in. And uh, how, how did you go? Well, you know, I was, uh, I was stabbed to death by my brother and his friend. <laughs> Anyways, it's going to be a good day in church today. So luckily, as you can see, I'm not dead. I, am, I wasn't stabbed. I wasn't, I wasn't stabbed. I was able to back off and they were able to get calm. And we were like, you're here. Yes, I'm here. And it all worked out. But what's interesting in, in relationships and in sibling relationships, hopefully you've never actually been stabbed by your sibling or brother or sister or friend or anyone, um, but sometimes even the best of intentions in relationships and, and, and family and these connections, it can go completely south and go uh, terribly wrong. Uh, but this is an area where God's power and his presence and his goodness wants to invade in our hearts and in our lives and how we actually live because the biggest changes in your actual experience of life are going to happen in relationship with other people. Uh, we often think, oh, it's my relationship with God that if that changes, things are going to really change. Well, that's true. But when God begins to connect with you and you begin to connect with him and his power and presence begins to go into your life, where it's actually going to bring the biggest fruit is in your relationships with the people around you. And this is actually how God designed the world to operate. So as we get into this uh, series, we're going to, again, lay the theological f- uh, foundation for the rest of the messages, and we'll be exploring the, the different connections or synapses of relationships in life. For instance, we'll talk about marriage, we'll talk about parenting, we, we might talk about dating, we'll talk about some of these different things. Uh, one of Jesus' disciples who ended up living the longest is John, the apostle, and, and John wrote uh, these letters to the churches in, believed to be in Asia Minor. Uh, in around 100 AD. And uh, his, his, this, this passage I'm going to read to you is a very parental kind of encouragement to love. In 1 John 4, verse 7 through 12, and then we'll skip some and read 19 and 21, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves uh, is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Somebody say, thank you. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Now, I'm going to read a little bit more, but John is giving this very parental kind of reasoning like, hey, kids, you have a really great life. How many of you parents have these types of conversations with your kids? Like things are good for you. You need to be kind to your brother or sister, you know, because of what mom and I have done for you, you need to behave in the right way. And John's given this same type of a tone. In verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Put that in the back of your mind because we'll come back to that. We love each other because he first loved us, because he loved us first. 
Then skipping ahead to verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that it would change our hearts today, God, that we would not be like a person who looks in a mirror and for, walks away and forgets what we look like, as you said in, in, in the book of James, but that we would look into your word, we'd be changed, challenged, and transformed, and leave today closer to you, walking in more obedience as a disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, John, the apostle, writes this letter to churches in Asia Minor, Turkey, and uh, <clears throat> writes this letter around 100 AD. But the context of this letter is he's dealing with a heresy that has impacted the church. So a lot of the pastoral epistles and letters written by Jesus' apostles to the churches in the New Testament that we read as our New Testament <clears throat> letters are actually dealing with error that had crept in. You know, do you know the natural state of a garden is weeds? And so the natural state of a human heart, the natural state of churches, the natural state of cultures is to disintegrate, right? To, to lose cohesion, to fall away, to become excessively worse and successively worse rather than to grow well. And so any type of active pastoral ministry, any type of active spiritual life must arrest the development of what the evil things that want to come and the error that wants to come. If you begin to coast in your spiritual life, if you begin to coast in your Christian life, you're not going to just stay the same. You will actively fall back away from God. How many of you know, we know this is true, right? Like we, in church, we talk about people that are following Jesus and we talk about backsliders. We don't have just like any sliders, you know, how you doing? Well, I'm not growing in God, but I'm not backsliding. I'm just sliding. No, you're either moving forward in God or you're falling back. And so the New Testament uh, is often dealing with the, the errors that are coming in and attacking and trying to pull the church away from Christ and away from the purity of doctrine, which is so valuable for us to understand because we can find the same drift in our own time. Yeah. That in my own heart, I'm call, I, I, I drift away from love, as John is talking about, and I drift into putting myself first. I haven't found that as I've aged that I've become naturally more unselfish. If anything, I'm more of a curmudgeon. I want my way. I want you to do it my way. And I'm mad at you, even if you don't even know it, you didn't do it my way. Like how many of you are just mad at people all the time on the freeway? You know, my kids are like, dad, you're, 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 you're raging. You know, I'm like, oh, they didn't turn that's what I turn signals for. And they're like, okay, grandpa, you know, so. These heretics asserted, the heretics that John's dealing with, this is from Britannica that they possessed perfection, that they were born of God and were without sin. So they have this idea, we call it Gnosticism, is kind of the big overarching heresy that says, basically, uh, flesh is bad, spirit's good. If you're a Christian, this is what people believed back then. You've sort of like elevated above that fleshly level. So anything you do in the flesh doesn't really matter because your spirit's good with God. Anyways, these people thought that they were born of God, so they're without sin. And so they said, well, since we're without sin, we don't really need to worry about keeping the commandments. We don't really need to worry about uh, being moral. And so John's letter is coming against this heresy saying, hey, um, you need to hold fast to what you've been taught. And he's repudiating these heretical teachings. It says here, Christians are exhorted to persevere in leading a moral life, which meant imitating Christ by keeping the commandments. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to follow Jesus. This is like a really simple thing, but most people today, Christians in 2022, do not get this, including me. 
Because we've, we've over-spiritualized and we've sort of made abstract what Jesus meant to be actual. So when Jesus says, follow me, he means do what I do. Stop doing what you do. Start doing what I do. How many of you are in a battle with doing what you do? <laughs> now, aren't you glad there's grace? Aren't you glad we're not saved by our works? Aren't you glad that we're saved by the, by the grace of God and that he's leading us and guiding us in a path towards sanctification? But if you're not on a path of sanctification, if you're on a path of sinification and you're not fighting and you're not wrestling, people will come to me and be like, Pastor, I'm just, I feel like bad because I'm, I'm, I'm sinning. And I'm like, good, that means you're alive. Dead people don't feel pain. When you've been born again and you have the spirit of God on the inside, there's a, now a war within you. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. It's like, man, I fight and wrestle against my flesh, my, my selfishness, my lust, my greed, my pride. Like I, there's a war inside of me and I feel this battle and it makes me uncomfortable. And we say yes and amen because that means you are born again. There is now a new spirit alive on the inside of you wrestling against that old, ugly, eh, dead man. But what, what John is dealing with is he's saying, hey, just because you prayed a prayer, just because you became a Christian, doesn't mean we just throw out everything Jesus told us to do to follow him. In fact, we need to pursue that. Pursue the holiness of God. Pursue the, the life of a Christian. And, I, and, and especially that, this is where we, we land this, that especially that of loving one another. If you were to say, what is the mark of a disciple of Jesus? I'm going to talk about this later. But he says, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It is this characteristic, this attribute, this action of loving one another. And Jesus specifically connects that to other Christians, to fellow believers. Because we have another heresy in the church today, which is I hate my brothers and sisters in the house and I'm so critical of the church, but I love orphans in Africa. And God says, actually, you're lying. You don't love them and you don't love me if you don't love the people that you're with. You see, we oftentimes want to elevate our perspective because it allows us to not love our neighbor you see, God's job is to love the world. It's your job to love that jerk across the street that won't shut up at three in the morning with his heavy metal music. <clears throat> That's me actually on our street. So, <laughs> but it's not heavy metal. It's smooth jazz. All right. So John is giving this, this pushback to this heretical teaching. Like you need to, you need to Continue to follow Jesus and you don't need to not let go of his call, upward call, pulling you forward in God. And he's saying, and, and the way this is marked, like the significant thing of how we follow Jesus is in this thing we call love. Let me give you a couple of key thoughts from this passage and I'll give you some applications after. A couple of key thoughts from this passage. One, in, in verse seven, John reminds us to continue. It's what it says, continue to love one another. Why does he use the word continue? Well, because love is a continual choice and recommitment and it's hard. People are like, Jake, you should exercise. And I'm like, well, I already did that once, you know. It doesn't work that way, does it? How many of you have ever lost some weight and then you put it back on, right? I found the natural drift is for my clothes to get smaller as I get older, as I mentioned. That's the natural drift. There has to be a continual commitment. When it comes to love and letting God's love flow through us, it's a continual choice to wake up every day and say, more of you, less of me. God, today I want to be a conduit of your love. I want to continue in your love. And it's hard to do that. You know, as I found that as I get to know people better, it's not like they become easier to love. If anything, the clearer you see someone, the more you realize, oh, the people around me are just as screwed up as me. Come on. Number two, the word love, 
in this passage is, in Greek is the word agape. And that word agape, Greek, the Greeks had various levels of love or different definitions of love. And agape is God's kind of love. It's the self-sacrificial, unconditional, putting the other person above oneself, that type of love. It's the love of Jesus dying on the cross, okay? It's that, that kind of love. And John's point here is that we've received that kind of love. We have received God's love, his self-sacrificing love. And it's now our, our turn to share God's love with other people. That is the essence of living like Jesus, okay? Is to receive freely, freely given, right? Freely receive, freely give. We've received grace. This is why in the Christian faith, we don't, we don't receive forgiveness and, and live in unforgiveness. You can't do it. Well, yeah, but you don't know what they did. Well, it, it doesn't really matter because you are forgiven for your sin and God will judge all sin and there is justice, but you can't hold account on someone and say, well, you owe me, and yet you, Jesus said, you don't owe me. And so the way that the economy of grace and forgiveness flows is this way. And when it comes to love, we've received God's love. It is our duty as Christians, and it is our, it is our capacity now as born-again believers to share God's love into the world around us, starting with the people in close proximity to us. Yeah. And that is the essence of living like Jesus. Number three, God's ultimate expression of love was giving Jesus to us as a sacrifice to take away our sins. We, last week, we're finishing up our God Has a Name series, and we talked about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Nassau. It's that lift up, take away uh, the sin. Um, this was how God showed his love. John makes it very clear. He's like, this is how God loved you. He gave Jesus as a sacrifice to take away your sin. In other words, it's not abstract love. You can point to an event. If you're like, man, I just love people, but well, how? Well, I just feel it. No, that's not agape love. Agape love should show up in your bank account. Agape love should show up in your journal, in your diary, like what you write about other people. It should show up in your schedule. Agape love should show up on your hands, your feet, what you do, where you go, in the words that you speak. Agape love should be visible, tangible, memorable, okay? And that's what John is saying. To understand love, it's not like our culture is so confused about the definition of love. We just said anything that you feel towards another person, usually sexually, is love. No. God's kind of love is the standard and it is the cross of Christ, the self-sacrificing, visible, tangible love of God. And that's the standard that John is expressing here. Now, thought number four about this, this passage. Our, our love is the visible, tangible expression of the invisible God. Listen to what he says here. He says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. How does the world see God? How do people that are lost or broken or wounded or even us, how do we experience the, the love of God, is it, a, is, it, is it a spiritual thing? Sure. Is it, do you feel it emotionally sometimes? Absolutely. So this isn't to say that's the only way, but I would say that predominantly the expression of God's love happens in and through the church, God's people, as they are giving life and love to one another in community and fellowship. The church is not just a place you go on Sunday, because most people only go like once a month anyways. <clears throat> but anyways... The church is something that you are a part of. Some of you didn't laugh enough because you're guilty. You know what I'm saying? You're guilty of sin. So anyways, I get paid to be here, so it's not like I'm better than you. I just, you know. Uh, 
That's funny too. I mean, I'm telling you guys, the jokes today are at another level. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and watch this message and laugh appropriately at my own jokes. <laughs> I think I say so many shockingly incendiary and inappropriate things that people are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So the, the love of God is expressed through us. This, this is a beautiful thought that like God being invisible and being a spirit, he works incarnationally in flesh. He works in and through people. John says, look, the way God showed you that he loved you was through putting himself in human form in Christ and giving his life. So Christians, how do we show God's love? We, we, we serve, we love, we give it, we, it's tangible. And as God's love is in us and living in us, um, we, we share that love. Last thought about this passage, number five, love is a command, not a suggestion. How can you love God and hate a fellow believer? John says, that's not possible. You're lying if you say that. He says, if you say, I love God, but I hate my brother, and this is specifically talking about your Christian brother or sister, okay? The people that you are in community in the church with, the, the people that you're intended to do life together with, the people that you're saved out of the world into community with, the ecclesia called out to gather the church. John says, if you say, I love God, but I really don't like this person, or I have a problem with this, I hate them or whatever, then you're lying about loving God. You can't have both of those things be true at the same time. Okay, let me give you some application points. And I want you to remember, we're laying a theological foundation for human relationships. Okay, so a couple application things today. Number one, how we love people is how we really love God or how we actually love God. I wish this wasn't true. I mean, I tried to like study it out, find a Greek word to parse the verb and make it not true because it's really hard because <laughs> I love God. Let me just tell you, when I sit down at my piano that was generously given to me and I, I worship and I think about Jesus, like Jesus is so amazing, it's so easy to love God. And then, and then a small child from the neighborhood is swinging a brick from the, this is actually a real thing that happened this week, you know, from our playground and I'm like, and then the love of God is not in me. How we love people is how we actually or really love God. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 22. To understand the heartbeat of Joy Church, two passages, Matthew 22, Matthew 28. Love God, love people, make disciples. Everything flows from this. In Matthew 22, a teacher of the religious law trying to test Jesus comes up and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is Matthew 22, 36. Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. All these nice religious Jews would have nodded along. Yes, we love God. That's, that's our duty. We are to worship. We're to live a life of purity, live a life of love towards God. And Jesus says something dynamic and shocking to his audience at this time. It might not shock you. You probably heard this before, but this is a very big shift in the, uh, the narrative. He says, this is the first command and greatest commandment. They're all nodding their heads. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And he's saying, this is a grand summarizing statement. This is essential. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why is that so dynamic? Well, the, we have to actually go into the Greek and see what he's actually saying here. Because when he says the phrase, the second is like it, in Greek, the word is homoios, which means of equal rank or importance. So Jesus says, this second command is just as important as the first. These two stand together, okay? You, you don't have one without the other. And if you, if it, it's interesting because culturally, we, we tend to want to gravitate towards one. Heresies always try to grab one commandment or another and run with it and exclude the other. 
And what you'll find is Orthodox Christianity will always pull you back to a centered place of both loving God, the primacy and importance of worship, but also loving your neighbor, the primacy and importance of justice and service and love. So where do you find the heresies in our day? Well, you have the social justice woke churches that are like, you know, whatever you do with your body is your business. Love is love. It's all about, you know, uh, dealing with race issues and economic injustices and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, what about like fellowship and community and worship in the church and like laying your life down for God and the holiness of God? And they're like, well, er, um, er, heresy. And then you have the other side. It's like, man, all we do is we're just like in the glory of God. We're going to like the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh heaven. They just made that up in some weird charismatic book. But we're going there and it's all about going deep, brother. We need to go deep and we need the spirit to come from the north and the east. And I'm like, do you actually lead a joy group? Uh, er, um, uh, heresy. Because what Jesus wants to do is bring us back into the center. He says, these two commandments, these are what anchor you. These are the essential things about how to serve God. It's just as important, loving other people. And this makes total sense, right? You can't compliment me and be like, Pastor Jake, you're great. Bethany sucks. Excuse me. We are going to have words. We might come to blows. You can't, you can't love me and hate my wife. We are one. We are a unit. You know, she might have to apologize for some of the things that she said in the past. I don't know. You know, we all do. And what what Jesus is saying is, how can you say, like, man, I love God, but people can basically take a hike? Then Jesus even puts relationship even before worship under certain circumstances. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, this is worship. This is redemption. This is the relationship with God, what that sacrifice at the temple represents. And you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. How we love other people is how we actually love God. And we can't confuse that. As a Christian, being pulled to the heresies of over, you know, all I do is love God, all I do is love God, or all I do is love the world, all I do is love my neighbor, we need to say, no, it's in those two dynamic realities, those two commands that we find the essence of the teachings of God and the teaching of Christ. Number two application is this, relationships are sacred. Okay, now we chose the verbiage for this series very carefully. We use the phrase restoring the sacredness of relationships for a very important reason. Listen to what the word sacredness means. It is the quality of being considered holy and deserving respect, especially because of a connection with God. Genesis 1, we are, we are made in the likeness and the image of God. Theologians have argued about this for thousands of years, what that actually means, but the Imago Dei, at least in some sense, in some way, it's connecting us that we are like God and that we are capable of sentient and sensitive, life-giving relationships. We are creative. We can, can, with our words, bring life and create. We can also bring death and destroy, right? Um, We're not just time plus slime plus chance. We're not biological accidents. We're not dancing to the tune of our DNA. We are made in the image of God. You're not an, a, an evolved ape. And I'm not talking about evolution here, but even if evolution were to be true, uh, which I don't accept, not because I'm a Christian, but because I haven't found enough evidence to believe in it. Um, although we have other Christians that do believe in evolution, so we don't make that a big sticking point here. I'm just telling you my personal view. I don't believe that theory. But 
Even if that were the case, you're still not just an animal. There's something different about you, the image of God, and therefore how you treat other people and deal with other people and operate with other people is a sacred thing. It's deserving of being holy, considered holy and deserving respect. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life as to ours, their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously, no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. When we think about sin, nearly all sin, even the sins that we are doing all by ourselves, most sin involves demeaning the dignity of a fellow image bearer or at the very least demeaning the dignity of your, the image of God in yourself. When we put our own selfish, lustful, arrogant, or greedy desires above the good of another human being, we demean their dignity, which is given as a gift of grace by the image of God bestowed upon them. Humans are more than just animals living out their desires and and impulses. There's something else to that. And we know that internally. I don't have time to philosophically lay the whole foundation of why that is true. I'm just going to ask you to accept it a priori today. Human dignity is the same for all human beings. When I trample on the dignity of another, I am trampling on my own. That's what Pope Francis said. And that's a beautiful thought because if all humans are made in the image of God, when I walk away from sin and I seek to then positively love other people, I'm not only blessing or helping or increasing the dignity, elevating of another, but I'm also doing it for myself, right? And as, the, as we learn to love each other the way God would call us to love each other, the world gets better for everybody. When people begin to ignore human dignity, it will not be long before they begin to ignore human rights. That's G.K. Chesterton. And this is what we see that in a culture that has brought down the level of what it means to be a human being and has made everything about the illusion of what I would call human freedom or agency, meaning that, you know, my, my expression as a human is my sexuality. I'm heterosexual or I'm homosexual, I'm a man, I'm a woman, and my identity is rooted in my sexuality or my identity is rooted in my career or my identity is rooted in whatever, and anything that anyone says to me that comes against what I want to do in this exact moment is wrong or bad or whatever, and now that's the highest ethic that we have in the land, the highest moral standard, which is really just relativistic, Um, what happens is it, it, it brings down the idea of human dignity that says because you are kind of special and important, we need to operate with carefulness in all these areas where we interact with each other. Yeah. I mean, the clearest picture of this in our day and age is sexuality. Like, we're a mess sexually as a culture. You know, we, we, have, we have tremendous sexual immorality, both out in public and also secretly. There's tremendous exploitation in this area, and it predominantly derives from either a diminishing of the dignity of another that is coming from the diminishing of the dignity of oneself, not seeing hey, that person that you're engaging in this activity with, oh, what's consensual? Well, that doesn't make it right. Might be legal, it doesn't make it good, okay? Uh, It's diminishing their dignity and it's also diminishing yours. What that ultimately leads to is abuse and exploitation, which is why there are more slaves today in 2022 than there ever were in 1858, 59. Did you know that? No, pastor, because I don't see people working on a plantation. There are more sexual slaves. There are more people living in actual slavery 
in the world today, study that out for yourself. Why? Because as we demean the image of God, we get worse and worse and worse at dealing with each other and more and more ex, ex, uh, exploitive. Am I saying that word right? I don't know. We exploit each other more. How about that? Number three, God changes the world through love. Here's the good news. Romans 5.8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Praise God. You know, almost every problem in our world would be solved by following Christ's command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, right? Because what is it saying? Hey, you're an image bearer, they're an image bearer. Do the right thing between you. Between you. How would you want to be treated? Do that for others. In the scriptures, we are commanded to love our fellow believers. We're commanded to love our friends. We're commanded to love our spouses. We're commanded to love our children. And we're even commanded to love our enemies. I think God has kind of covered the bases here. This thing is important. This series about being relatable. Hey, I'm, I'm wanting to bring sacredness into my relationships. I want to see the dignity, the human dignity of my dating relationships. I want to see the human dignity, the image of God in my marriage, in my children and in my friendships and in my church relationships. Uh, God is, is all about this. This is how we, we live out what he is doing inside of us. Another G.K. Chesterton quote, it's one of my favorite quotes. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. I think it's hilarious when somebody's like, I'm so mad at some foreign nation for what they're doing or whatever. And you're like, your real enemy is the guy you work with. Because he's the one that you secretly harbor all this resentment and uh, rage and anger against and actually work against, you know, subversively against. Jesus says, by this you will know, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Love is the mark of true discipleship. God's agape love, sharing God's agape love, actually, not abstractly, but actually, is the most mature and sophisticated theology you will ever find. It not only changes you, it changes the world. God changes the world through this. As the love of Jesus gets into your heart and you share it with other people in a real way, everything changes. Everything changes. You will get better. The people around you will get better and the world will get better. The medicine our planet needs is the love of God shared freely from those that have been transformed to the hearts and into the lives of other people. And as we engage that and embrace that in every relationship and we say, man, the seed of my marriage is to be a mirror. Okay, that's actually what image of God, one of the, the meanings of it is to be a mirror. God's love is shining so brightly on me. And if I could reflect some of that to my wife, Bethany, then I'm going to be sharing the light of God, his love with her. She's going to get better and she's going to be able to do that to the kids and the kids are going to be able to do that to the neighborhood and at the school and the school kids are going to be able to do that to the teacher and, and all around, all around. And so this is, this is what it means to be relatable when we talk about this series is we're restoring that sacredness, that holiness, that dignity of our relationships and letting God move through it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? Real quick, we're going to finish up. But I want to give you an opportunity, if you're here today, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, I didn't, like, preach about the cross of Jesus today very much, but here's the reality. We did say this, that God's love was fully demonstrated and expressed by Jesus giving his life. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm not a Christian. I, I have not made a decision to be a follower of Jesus and to give him my life. We give an opportunity to take that first step of that journey every Sunday at Joy Church because we believe that every week God brings people to church 
that are hungry for him, want a relationship with him, and that he orchestrated this moment for you, though it feels like an ordinary moment, it's actually an extraordinary moment because he wants to, to give you new life, bring you into his family. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I want to become a Christian, would you just raise your hand so I can see? We're not looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. Anybody in this place, Pastor, I want to become a Christian today. Amen. Awesome. And let's pray this prayer together. All of us together, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for your love and mercy revealed at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life. I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.